have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 18. It's where we'll be this morning. Jumping back into Genesis. We've been working through it for several months and we're in the 18th chapter. As the people of God coming around the Word of God, we want to approach this Word humbly. This is God's Word. Every word of it is God-breathed. So it holds authority over us. And so when we approach this Word, we want to approach it humbly. This is why we pray to God that He would help us here, that He would bless the reading and teaching of His Word so that He might be glorified. And this morning we have a, a corporate prayer for this. So if you guys would read the white portions together, and I will read the yellow. So let's pray together. Teach us Your way, O Lord, and lead us on a level path. Teach us, O Lord, to follow Your decrees. Then we will keep them to the end. Give us understanding, and we will keep Your law. And obey it with all our hearts. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, when God defines Himself in the Scripture, He, he defines Himself to Moses one time in Genesis or Exodus chapter 34. If you remember this, He, he kind of gives us a self-definition. He's saying, this is who I am. And it says this in Exodus 34. It says, The Lord, the Lord, a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping mercy for thousands, or keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So when God gives this definition, here's who I am, here's who I want to be known as, He, he includes this, that He is a God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love, but He is a God who will by no means clear the guilty. So God wanted to be to make sure that Moses, and, and through Moses the Israelites, and then the, the, the people out from there, the, the, the nations, to know that this is the kind of God He is. That He is a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. But He's also a God who will by no means clear the guilty. That is to say that God wants to be known as a God of mercy and also a God of justice and righteousness. A God who is holy. And so while this is spelled out and even given to us by God in the book of Exodus... This was known about God before that time as well. It was not spelled out in Exodus, but in Genesis it is displayed as God continues to deal with humanity. And so what have we seen so far in Genesis? We've seen a God who is overly gracious and overly merciful to people, and yet at the same time He upholds His justice, bringing a flood when, when the world was full of sin, but merciful to save a family. And expelling Adam and Eve out of the garden, but, but merciful not to just kill them on the spot. And on down we go. And so what we see here in Genesis 18 is this again. We see the character of this God who is the, the judge of all as the creator of all and he displays his character toward humanity toward Sodom and Gomorrah specifically in chapter 18 as an intercessor comes, as Abraham comes and, and asks and intercedes and pleads on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so here's what's going on. Our, our attention is being turned to these cities outside of where Abraham would have lived, to Sodom and Gomorrah, who you likely know, this is, these are cities that are infamous for their wickedness, for their evil, for their evil ways and evil practices. And, and as we approach these cities, and as we approach what we know is coming towards Sodom and Gomorrah, if you're familiar with this story, we, we are left with this question of, of how can God be the God who is both merciful, abounding in steadfast love, and who is just, who will by no means clear the guilty. So, 
If you remember Genesis 18, it's been two weeks, so I'll just catch us up on this chapter. God arrived, He showed up to Abraham, He came with two guys, two angels came with Him. He made a promise, a little bit more specifically to Abraham, you're going to have a son through Sarah. He even kind of directs some of his words directly at Sarah, just to let her know, you are going to have a son, that the promised seed is going to come to you. And they're still at Abraham's house, he played host to them. And they're moving on their way. So Abraham is, is, is still the host to his guests. And that's where we pick up in Genesis 18. And we're going to start in verse 16. The men set out from there and they looked down toward Sodom. So the, the, the author is pointing our attention to Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And perhaps he's, he's being a good host by kind of walking with them for a ways. Or maybe he just wants as much time as possible with God and these angels. But the mention of Sodom should alert our attention that something's going on. We need to pay attention to what's happening in Sodom. And so, verse 17, the Lord says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So God says, I'm going to reveal something to Abraham, and it's God's idea. Abraham is not being nosy. He's not being overly inquisitive. He's not going like, God, what are you going to do next? What are you going to do over here? I saw him more. If you know, if he's thought about them, like, let's think about what we should do here. Like, none of that's going on. God is the one who comes up with the idea to reveal his plan, to reveal what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, to reveal him kind of a, the, the reason for his coming uh, to Abraham. It's God's idea, and he says it's his idea because he chose Abraham. So in other words, there's some intimacy there, some, there's some closeness in relationship with Abraham that he has, and, and because of that, he wants to reveal himself and reveal his plans even more closely to him. That is, I think, that Abraham and God's relationship, there's this growing closeness between them that, that there should be. Right? Abraham's walked with the Lord now for, for years. He, he's been called all the way back in Genesis 12. He was called and, and he's been growing and, and God's been working on him, testing him. And he's been growing in his faith and knowledge of God. And so there should be along with that, and there always is if it's really happening, this growing closeness to the Lord. The more God reveals, the, the more Abraham responds. The, the more God reveals and, and says and speaks, it seems as if the more Abraham believes and loves. And, and on and on we could go. And we could say this, that God wants to reveal what He's about to do because He wants to let Abraham in a bit. There's not, Abraham doesn't know everything. God knows more and, and He's getting ready to do something. And He wants to let Abraham in. That's His idea. We know that you can only get to know someone to the extent that they open up and let you into their life and what's actually going on. You, you know people that are completely shut down, like they are just a veneer, like you cannot get in. Well, you, you can't force your way into knowing people. You know people that are an open book and like you feel like you know them immediately because everything is out on the table before you. And we can only get to know someone to the extent that they let someone in. And here's the reality is that God is not closed off toward His creatures. He's not, he's not closed off to His people. That is that God wants to be known. He's the one who comes down. He is the one who shows up at Abraham's tent. He is the one who is making promises. He is the one who is telling him these plans. He's the one who talks. He's the one who is revealing these things. God's idea because God wants to be known. He desires relationship with His people. In fact, He desires to be their God and they be my people. He wants some closeness, some intimacy 
with the people that He has called by faith, that He has chosen, He wants them to know Him and He wants to know them as well. And so He acts. He reveals His character. He tells of His plans. He makes promises. He does these things so that He would be known and so His people would know Him. And for us, He does this too. He wants relationship. And so we have the Word in front of us. We think that maybe God is this unknown. How can we know God? Well, God gives us His Word. And it's a lot more than just a bunch of information and, and chapters and verses. It's giving us God. Like, this is who God is. It's, it's helping us know the God of the universe. So we have the Scripture, but we also have Jesus, the Word, right? Who comes down and is the image of the invisible God. The, the exact imprint of His nature. He's the radiance of the glory of God. That the Word, that God became flesh, tells us, reminds us, and stands in front of us saying that God wants relationship, that God wants to be known. That He's opening up, even to the point of His life and His death and resurrection. He's opening up to us. And this is all God's idea. He's the one who came. We didn't go after Him. He sought us. He's the one who revealed Himself. We didn't go seeking, and no one seeks after God, but God came after us. And so it's God's idea here that He share with Abraham what's going on, and then tells him about Sodom and Gomorrah. God brings it up. God's the one who initiates this. And we see, so He continues in verse 20, The Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. And I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. There is a problem in Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's a problem that's continued on from Genesis 3 in the garden onward. What's the problem? The same problem that we come in here with. The problem is sin. This is the primary problem. There's sin. This is always the problem of humanity. Like We have this human problem. The human problem is that we have sinful hearts turned away from the Lord, not toward Him. This is the problem in Sodom and Gomorrah. And God has been provoked to go and see Sodom and Gomorrah because of their, what does it say, grave sin. There is a great outcry in Sodom and Gomorrah. Now this is the outcry, you can almost imagine like Abel's blood that was crying out from the ground to God. This is kind of what's going up to God. This outcry of their great sin. We don't know if it's just because they're evil and God knows it and that's the outcry. Or if He hears the outcry of those who have been around and through those places and known of their wickedness or even been uh, victims of their wickedness. But whatever the reason is, there's this great outcry going up because of their sin. It's a reminder that God takes sin seriously. And I need this over and over and over again because how likely do I take my sin sometimes? And yet sin is, is this great outcry to God. God reminds us of Sodom and Gomorrah to wake us up from the idea that sin is no big deal. And Sodom and Gomorrah is going to be used later on in the Scripture for that very reality. To warn us, this is what happens to sin and sinners. And so this, this going down, this sounds good, right? He got, came to Abraham. That was a good thing that you should welcome God to. But this going down that he is doing is, is not a welcome going down. This is a going down in order of a view of judgment. It's a going down to see if destruction is deserved. This is a, a coming down like we saw in Babel, which was not a good coming down. God was going to judge at Babel. That's what's going on here. It's, it's a coming down in view of judgment. Now... 
when we think about this and what we know about Sodom and Gomorrah already, that they have this great outcry, this grave sin, we know that God owes them nothing except His wrath. Right? That's what they do. Like he owes them His wrath because of their sin. So God does not have to come down. He does not need to go. He could just start raining down sulfur and fire and brimstone from heaven. That's what He could do. But instead, who is this judge? This is a judge who comes down and he tells Abraham what he's going to do, where he's going. He brings witnesses with him. That is, I think that we're going to see that God isn't the Hulk. Right? The Hulk, like he gets mad at everything. Like something hits him the wrong way and he's mad. Like his heart rate goes up and he like boom, he like bursts into this big green monster that's set on destruction of everything around him. And this is not the picture of our God. Right? Amen to that, right? I mean, God is not just like, oh, there's a sin. Now He's just this huge green monster that's going to destroy everything. God isn't doing that. He's not moving quickly to judgment. He's coming down. He, he's very under control. He's not quick to His wrath. He's not out of control of, of His emotions. And we could go on and on. But here's what we know, that God is consistently in the Scripture spoken of one who is merciful and what? Slow to anger. And it is on full display in this passage. There is already a great outcry. Their sin is already very grave. He doesn't need to go so that He would know what's going on there. As if God needs to know more. He, he knows all that there is to know. His going down is, is, is for us. It's for Abraham. It's for reminding This is God. He's slow to anger. He's patient. The Lord withholds His immediate judgment upon them. He is showing mercy to them, a sinful people. This is good news for Sodom and Gomorrah. They don't know it, maybe. But it's good news that God didn't just rain down on them. It's good news for us, too. Because Ephesians 2 says of us, all of us, that we are by nature children of wrath. And yet God, what does He do? He hasn't hasn't immediately destroyed us. We're here. We're breathing. We're listening to His Word. What mercy He's shown us. How slow He's been to anger in our lives. Instead, God is patient toward us. He's slow to anger. He's merciful, not wishing that any would perish, but all would come to the knowledge of the truth. See, God is revealing Himself. God is bringing this up so that He would be shown as the one who is patient, who's merciful, who's slow to anger. Hey, when we go to the Scripture, we don't want to know these things about God so that they'd be facts for us to know. And we, when we know that God is merciful and slow to anger and patient, that is an invitation to worship Him, to know Him. This is who He is. He's expressing it that we would turn to Him in thanksgiving. So when was the last time you thanked God for His mercy, for His patience? Probably less often than you sinned against Him. When's the last time we thanked God for all the judgment and all the wrath that He's withholding from all of us or is withholding even now from us? When's the last time we've even thought about all the mercies that we haven't even been able to see from God that He's giving to us? God is patient. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. It's not the Hulk roaring down towards Sodom and Gomorrah bent on destruction comes down much differently. And this is good news to wicked Sodom and Gomorrah. To wicked Israelites originally reading this passage. To sinners like us here today. This is good news. But if you are the Israelites listening to this, you you know some some more, right? They, They had just come out of slavery in Egypt. They'd been oppressed as ones who had been sinned against. 
They want, may want more than seeing this God who's not the Hulk. Right? They, they had a cry. They gave a cry out to God. Save us from this wicked nation. They are holding us under their thumb. They are acting unjustly. They are being mean to us and, and keeping us in slavery. And they're not treating us well. And their cry went up to heaven. So they may want more than God to just be calm and, and walk towards them. They may want some justice. They might know. They know this spot of, of being the victims of evil, of being the victims of wickedness. And so maybe they don't want just mercy from God. Right? Maybe they thought, we need something more. I'm glad you're slow to anger, but you need to bring some justice here. So it's good news, I think, that God is slow to anger. But what is He going to do about the outcry of sin, of injustice? Of grave sin coming up. Well, Abraham, he, he knows that when God says that he is coming down, that this is a coming down in judgment. And so when the, the party splits up, verse 22, Abraham stays to speak. Verse 22 says, The men turned from there and they went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Now remember that Abraham has a history with Sodom and Gomorrah. There was a time when Abraham was with Lot, and there were some problems in between their, their two groups. So he said, all right, let's, we can split this thing up. Let's just split it so everything will go good. And he gives Lot, as a gracious man, as a faithful man, he gives Lot the choice of the land. And what does Lot do? He doesn't say, like, selflessly, as the younger, you know, as the, well, you're my uncle, you're the one that received the problem, I'll let you choose, and I'll just go wherever you know. He's like, I'll pick the best land, I'll take that land. And it happens to be this land where Sodom and Gomorrah is. So Abraham has a history, you know, with the land... He has Lot and Lot's family. He was relatives of Abraham. They're there as well. But also you remember the, the, the story where there was a couple kings and they were fighting. They were battling, And they took all of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. They took their people and their spoils and ran away with them. And Abraham gathers his posse together and they go after them, defeat them and bring them back. So he, he bails out the king of Sodom. You remember this. So, so Abraham has a history here. Lot selfishly chose this portion of land, and the king of Sodom, when he is kind of congratulating Abraham for bringing and bringing back all this stuff and kind of saving his his whole kingdom, what does he do? This king of Sodom, he he, he makes some sly demands. You, know, you give me this, but you keep that. And he even tries to take credit, tries to take glory for for Abraham's riches, for Abraham's victory, instead of giving glory to the Lord, which Abraham does. And so there's a history between Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah that may not be very good. Where Abraham may look at them as, as not like, this is my peaceful brothers that live in the land, but like, these are some wicked people. And Abraham surely doesn't like the outcry that's coming against them. The grave sin that's going on there. And so we could say that when Abraham knows that judgment is coming, that could possibly bring him joy. Good! Rain it down on him. I've dealt with him before. That king, he's a real jerk. Just go ahead, pour out your wrath on him. He could be indifferent. Like, okay, if that's what you want to do, God, like, I'm fine with that. They've done some good, maybe. They've probably done a lot of bad. I've been noticing this myself. But that's not how Abraham responds, is it? Think about how Abraham responds after he knows God's plan. He knows God has come. He knows God is going to go in view of judgment. And what does he say? There's not indifference here. There's not a, a desire that they be destroyed. Abraham drew near, verse 23, and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? 
There's no joy or indifference in Abraham's voice. Rather, he begins to intercede for this people. I mean, this speaks of the, the character of Abraham, doesn't it? That he is compassionate. That he, that he cares about other human beings that are, are there. That he, he actually wants good for them, it seems. You won't sweep away the righteous with the wicked, would you? As a man of faith, he has compassion for image bearers, for fellow people, and he intercedes for them. He knows their wickedness too. He has that history with them, and yet he begins to intercede. He he knows how they can be, and he still goes to God and pleads to them. And I think that that reminds us that the the more we we know God, the less indifferent we will become toward others. It always works that way. The more you know God, the more concerned you're going to be about any that would bear His image. Because the more you see about God, the the greater you see Him as. The more we grow, the more we learn that we will see Him as greater and greater and greater. It reminds me, in in the Chronicles of Narnia, every time they they see Aslan, for those who have faith, he gets bigger. And it's not because he's growing, it's because their faith is growing. It's kind of the idea. And this is what's going on. When we grow in our knowledge and awareness of who God is, He gets more glorious. He gets better and bigger all the time. And the more that happens, the more we see God is great, how much more are we going to see His image bearers as worthy of, of honor and dignity and all these things. And so Abraham, he, he's looking at it through that lens. that he's, he's starting to know God more. And because he knows God more, he can't be indifferent. He couldn't look on judgment with, with joy. Not when people are there. And so he's not indifferent and he's concerned. And he's even concerned about enemies. And isn't this what Christ tells us? Don't just love those who love you. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. He tells them, I want you to lift up hands praying for all men. It's Timothy. Peter says to honor the king. The king. In other words... This is being worked out by these New Testament apostles. And they're saying, we shouldn't just love the people that are around us, and the church, and the people of God. I know we should be praying and, and, and listening even to our enemies. We should be praying for them and honoring them as best we can because we love God. Because what we know about God, it leads them to greater love for others, not less. And Abraham compassionately intercedes. And what does he do? It He bases it on something. Verse 23 you will indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked. He, he is appealing to the justice of God. Verse 24 and 25, he says, Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is what? Just. So, in, in a sense, what's, what's on trial, in a way, is God's justice here. That's what Abraham is doing. You're just. You, you surely won't do something that's not just. And here's Abraham comes with this perspective. He knows God's the judge. I don't hold sway over that He's the one who makes the final call. He is the one who is, is the one who is going to make this decision. And he appeals to the judge. And he appeals to the judge based upon this judge's character. He has access to him, he knows his character, and that's how he appeals to him. And so he asserts his faith, I think, in God's justice here, and intercedes on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah based upon that justice. That is, his appeal is about the nature and character of God. That's how he intercedes, that's how he prays to them. This is how Jesus 
tells his followers to pray. He says, pray in my name. Anything you ask in my name, it will be done for you. And we like to say, like, that is an incantation that you pray over any prayer and you will get what you want. Right? No, like, of course not. We'll never say that here because it's not true. Right? Jesus is saying, pray in my name because he's, he's saying the same thing Abraham is. Appeal to me and appeal to God based on my character and my nature, who I am. And I act in that line in, in accordance with my name. He says, this is how you should pray. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. In other words... Let your name be praised. Your name is the one that matters. We're appealing to the character and nature of God. We're wanting it to be worshipped. We're wanting it to be praised. We're wanting all things to be done in accordance with that name. And this is how we should pray. This is how we should intercede on behalf of others. Do this because you're just. Do this because you're merciful. Do this because your name is on the line here. Jesus, in John chapter 12, He says, glorify your name. And He hears back, and the crowd hears back, I have and I will. Jesus in John chapter 17 says, Glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you and your name. Hallowed be your name. It's how He teaches us to pray. In other words, this is a prayer, and these are prayers, and I think Abraham is interceding uh, on behalf of and for the magnification of God's name, His character, His nature. Let that shine forth here, God. Let who you are and all that you represent, let that go forward here. And that's how Abraham prays. So he starts with 50. We have some other context in the Scripture that that would tell us that maybe a small city would be about 100 people. So it's possible that maybe he chooses 50 for that reason. They're like, alright, let's just say the small city, half the people are righteous. Will you spare if, if just maybe 50 are righteous? Verse 26 says, And the Lord says... If I find at Sodom 50 righteous people in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. So God responds in a way that shows that He is just. There's still judgment coming. But if there's 50, I won't. But He's merciful, right? It's not as if these 50 are righteous in the sense that they haven't sinned and don't deserve the judgment of God as well. But God, God knows that He is merciful as well. And so He holds back. And you get the sense here that, that Abraham isn't just twisting his arm. Right? Because who let him know about this plan? God did. And God is invoking and provoking in Abraham a response. A response to pray and intercede on behalf of these people. And so when Abraham comes and says, for 50? He's not twisting God's arm like, okay, I guess for 50. That's not how God is responding. God wanted this to happen. He wanted to further display His character and His nature. And He's using Abraham to bring this out as He questions God. So God says, I'll spare the city for 50. But Abraham, he, he presses on. Verse 27. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am but dust and ashes. And so there's no presumption on Abraham's part. He doesn't presume that he has a say in the final account here. And I think we need to know this, that those who are let in most with God and His plans are not the proudest people in the world. They're the humblest. Moses is listed in the Scripture as the meekest person on the earth. Moses was led into everything. He even got to see the backside of the glory of God. And does it make him the one who's on a power trip and says, you need to come to me for all the answers? No. It makes him humble. We think of Isaiah. He sees the Lord high and lifted up. He gets this vision. Not a lot of people in the Scripture get a vision of God. Very few. And what does it do with Isaiah? It does not make him proud. It doesn't make him say, you know what, all you Israelites, I'm the Bible.
Bible answer man now, and you all need to come to me. doesn't do that. Instead, he says, woe to me. He's humble. Paul, he's given a thorn. Alright, Paul had all these revelations from God, and it doesn't make him like, I'm the great Paul. And Timothy, you do what I say, because that's the way it goes. No, it makes him humble. He's, he's weak now, and he, he starts rejoicing in his weakness. Because he knows that in his weakness, God is seen and shown to be strong. And so, if there is somebody who you feel like they, they are let into the knowledge of God, maybe a little bit more specifically, and they start boasting about these things, then you might know that they might be off. It's a pretty good indicator that you probably should not listen to them. Those who have the inside track and are prideful. And God gave the prophets His word to deliver it, and it never makes them arrogant, it doesn't make them mean. They're humble people before them. They, they know God. They know they've heard from Him. And they, they turn around they're more compassionate. They're more humble than when they started. They're not less so. And so with humility, Abraham makes his intercession. And he continues. He went from intervals to five and he's going to go to intervals of ten. If you go down with us through 28 through the end. Suppose five of the 50 are lacking. Will you destroy this whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. And he answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Humility again expressed. Suppose there are thirty found there. And he answers, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. And he answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. And then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again. But this... Once He maybe feels like his time is up. That God has said, or even you know, felt the tension of like, this far and no further. Suppose ten, he says, are found there. And God answers, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. And so God is, is kind of whittled down by, by Abraham's intercession all the way down to ten. Now we know, and, and some would say like, Sure, Abraham has compassion all the way down to this small number because his family, his relatives are there, Lot and his family. But we know there's more going on than that because Lot's family, as we're going to see in the next chapter, at most, including, if we were to include two sons-in-laws, would be six. And so Abraham is pleading for more than just his family. And I think that he has that in mind the entire time, that he wants more than to save his family. He is trying to do whatever he can. But going all the way down to ten, ten out of these cities shows us how patient and how merciful God is willing to be with such a great outcry and grave sin that is before Him in His face the entire time. God is willing to endure sin for the sake of just ten. In other words, God is merciful, is what He's saying. I mean, how could we not read this? How could it not be said about God that He is merciful and slow to anger? Now, there are all sorts of outcries today and have been forever. Outcries about God and His justice. How could you let that happen? How could you not intercede here? How could you not do something in this situation? But you know what? I don't hear those outcries about His mercy. No one seems to be doing that. Of... How could you be merciful there? Like, why did you show me mercy? You shouldn't have done that. There's less outcries about His mercy. Because we need it. 
And this passage, it just sets up next chapter where we're going to see the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is a chapter that a lot of people will cringe at and try to explain away in many different ways. Oh, God wasn't really mad at sin. And God doesn't really work that way anymore. They try to let God off the hook. But I'm, I'm struck with in chapter 18 and in verse 19 that God does not want to be let off the hook. God is not trying to distance Himself from this. He's trying to say in advance, He's revealing His plan. He brings it all up so that everyone will know that He's the judge. And this is the character of this judge before we even get to their destruction. And so what's He like? He's merciful. For the sake of ten, He would have spared the city. And actually, He does spare the few in the city. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. And yet, He's still completely just in all of these things. So, don't we need both aspects from God? Amen. We need a God who is merciful. We need a God who is just. The Israelites, they're thinking about this. They've been under the thumb of the Egyptians. They would have wanted justice. Yet, they go out into the desert. They're barely even to the Red Sea. And they, they need mercy. Because they're complaining and whining about God's deliverance of them. They need mercy from God. As they're going and preparing, as we think they're reading this originally, preparing to go into the promised land, don't they want both justice and mercy? God, look at these wicked people that are in the land that you promised to your people. Bring justice. But don't kill us because we're sinful too. Be merciful. They may not have said that, but that is exactly what they need. And we need this too. We, we come in here, whether you recognize it or not, like let's not pretend, like we're broken, we're sinful. We've sinned against God. Our sin is an outcry to the Lord. We have grave sin because we've denied Him. We've said, I'd rather do life with me in charge rather than you. I think that'll be better because I'm omniscient. Although we're not. And as sinners, don't we need a God who's merciful? Who would not destroy us for our sin? We need a God who is merciful or we're destined to face His wrath. And yet, yet we, we want God to be just. Now if God isn't just, then He's not holy. He can't be God if He's not just. You can't just let things go. It's not okay. Every person has a sense of that justice. That's not fair. We want God to be fair. Of course, we think about that on our terms rather than His terms. But we need a God who is just too. He has to be just to be perfect. He has to be just to be holy. He has to be just to be righteous. And so what's to be done with sin and sinners then if God is to be just? Now this is a question that many have struggled with. How can we have a God who is both merciful and just? How can we have a God who can have in relationship with Himself sinners with their sin? Here's what I think this points us to. Is that we need Jesus. Amen. That we need God to act on our behalf. We need God to take on flesh. We need God to live perfectly. We need God to, to die a sacrificial death. We need God to be raised from the dead. This is what we need. We need God to come and rescue sinners. Paul sums it up this way, and I'm going to read the whole passage because it's too good to skip. Romans chapter 3. This is a passage that theologians wrestle with. with how can God be just and, and have relationship with sinners? It says, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And this righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus. For all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all of us have sinned. 
fall short of the glory of God, and are justified. How do sinners get justified before a holy God? Well, it's by His grace, as a gift. They didn't earn it, it was given to them through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. In other words, Jesus had to die in order to put us in the favor of God. Propitiation by His blood to be received, how? By faith. And this was to show God's righteousness. And here's where it matters. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He could be both of these things right here. So that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There is only one way that God can be both just and the justifier. That He can be merciful and just. That He can not just let sin go, but can also have relationship, even for eternity, with sinners. And that's through the propitiation, through the atonement, through the blood of Jesus. Through the blood of God Himself, God achieves this. And so the person and work of Jesus show that we have a God who is both merciful and just. Amen. On the cross, these meet so well that we see God's wrath poured out on sin. But not on sinners. It was poured out on the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. The sinners who believe in Him now would have their sins removed from them. Now would have their sins judged. That God wouldn't just let them off the hook. That's not what happened. God judged your sin if you're a believer. And He judged it not on you, praise the Lord, but on Jesus. That's where He judged that sin. That's where He is just. And yet, that is where He is merciful. Because what do we do? We receive. We receive righteousness there. We receive grace there. Not because we've earned it. Not because we've deserved it. Not because we've paid for it. But because Jesus paid for it. And He says, here, it's mine by, by grace. If you just would believe. So He can both save and rescue sinners and still pour out His righteous and just wrath on sin. And we see this in Jesus. This is where this points us to that God can be both. So Abraham's intercession, it, it turns out to be Revealing to the character of God that He is both just and He's merciful. And Abraham is drawing this out as he questions God. His intercession serves to be, in a sense, an example for us, for the people of God. It's compassionate, it's, it's humble, it's intercession for people based upon God's nature, that He's merciful, that He's just, that He's righteous. And yet, Abraham's example and intercession has all sorts of problems, all sorts of limitations. Think about it. Abraham's intercession isn't ultimate. He's sinful himself. So he doesn't intercede from the right spot to begin with. He's limited in his view. He's skewed in his view. He has a fallen nature like ours. He, he knows God's plan, but he only knows God's, God's plan for Sodom and Gomorrah. God didn't reveal the plan for the entire nations to him, so he's even limited in his intercession. How can he even intercede on behalf of the world? Because he only knows part of the plan. And here's what we also know about Abraham. He's going to die. He can't intercede for, for nations and people and be an intercessor if you're going to die. He can't be a substitute. He can't pay for sins. He's going to die, so we need another intercessor. Do we not? One who isn't limited in what he knows about the, way, the plan and will of God. One who, who comes to intercede, who can come with, without being skewed in, in sin. Without having a nature that's, that's fallen and ruined by the fall. need one who can intercede and keep interceding for us. Once again, we, we need Jesus. 
And in his sacrificial death, he, he shows the justice and mercy of God. But, but he's raised. Right? And he's raised. And, and then he's raised. We, we get to read this in, in Romans chapter 8. That Christ Jesus is the, one who, is the one who died. More than that. More than that. He was raised. Christ Jesus is the one who's raised and who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is doing what? Interceding for us. This is the intercession that we need. He is perfect. He knows the full, the full will of God. Nothing is hidden from Him. He is God Himself. He can be the substitute that can step in and substitute His life for sinners. That He can take their wrath and they can get His righteousness. He is the intercessor that we need because He lives forevermore. He's not going to die so that when sinners need mercy, Christ can cry out for them because He lives whereas Abraham is dead and can no longer cry out for sinners. Jesus still lives to intercede. Indeed, and even now, I think and I hope, and that He's interceding for us even now that we would see God's mercy and grace and we believe in Him. And through Jesus, we know that God is patient still, not wishing that any would perish but that all would come to the knowledge of the truth. And Jesus Himself is that truth. We look at Genesis chapter 18, and as we look at Sodom and Gomorrah and all that's going to happen, we know that God hasn't changed. God isn't more judgmental and, and wrathful then than He is now. And He isn't more loving and merciful and slow to anger now than He was then. But all along, God has been the same. That He is both just and merciful. And that we need both. And we get to, by His grace, thank Him that He is perfectly just and perfectly merciful at the same time. Let's go to Him in prayer and thank Him that this is who He is and this is what He's done. Father, we want to thank You for Your justice. And we cry out for more of it. That you would do right. You'd never be seen as one who is doing something that is not just. Bring justice in the earth. And help us to, as we see in my prayer, to act justly as well. To be like you. To imitate you in our just living before you. But God, we thank you for your mercy. Because we come as sinners. Not deserving anything before you. Only deserving your wrath. And if we cry out for justice too much, we need to be worried. Because justice for us looks like hell forever. And so we're thankful that you're also merciful and slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love because we need that from you or we would be undone. And so we thank you for your mercy. And we pray that your mercy would be shown all over the world. And we pray that we as your people would be merciful as you are merciful. We thank you for both. And we thank you for how they were displayed in Jesus. That you could be both the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. That our sins just aren't overlooked. The wrath is poured out. And yet our sin is still taken from us and we're given righteousness instead because you are merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. And so I want to pray, God, that if there are those who have not believed in Jesus, they need to know. And I, feel, I hope, pray that they would feel the weight that they are still under your judgment, under your wrath. But that there's a way of escape. That they trust in Jesus. And I pray for believers. 
strengthen our faith in a God who would be completely and wholly just and completely and wholly merciful. And that that would be our song for the eternal ages to come. God, be honored and glorified in your people. Amen.